sports fans and certainly NPR sports fans know the name John Feinstein very, very well. Uh, Rightly so for a number of superb books which he has written, in addition to all of the good work he has done for Sports Illustrated, Washington Post, Golf World, and so on. His books include uh, A Good Walk Spoiled, A Season on the Brink, and Where Nobody Knows Your Name. And uh, John Feinstein has also uh, uh, had great success uh, writing sports-themed books for young readers, uh, he and I have spoken about a couple of those different books, including Last Shot, Vanishing Act, Cover Up, and his most recent book uh, of that nature is a book called The Walk-On, May the Best Quarterback Win, uh, in which John Feinstein paints a really riveting portrait of what happens in a football-hungry uh, town when uh, a very talented quarterback uh, moves to town and, as a freshman, already demonstrates spectacular skills, but has very little hope of unseating the incumbent quarterback, who also happens to be the very stern football coach's son. It's a, it's a very, very interesting scenario, painted and uh, executed very, very authentically. And I'm very excited uh, to have this opportunity to speak with John Feinstein about a number of sports matters, but especially about this book called The Walk-On, published by Alfred A. Knopf. John Feinstein, we welcome you back to the morning show. Greg, good to talk to you. How are you? Just fine. I'm, I'm really, really happy for this opportunity. I read this book cover to cover, and I absolutely loved it. And I have to tell you something that, uh, have you comment on something I, I told my wife just this morning, uh, which is that uh, when it comes to fiction, in many ways, I almost enjoy a book like this more than anything else. I mean, in other words, a book which really was designed for, I suppose, a middle school or high school reader at best, uh, I found thoroughly engrossing and very enjoyable. And I wonder how much you think about or in what way you think about young readers specifically when you write a book like this. And, and, uh, and if it's okay with you, if some of us out here who are adults enjoy the book as well. No, it's more than okay with me, Greg. I'm I'm very happy to hear that, and I I hear that a fair bit. You know, when I, when I'm writing the, these these books, and and with the walk on being a new series in particular, I do want to draw in the younger audience. I want the middle school kids, uh, to, and and the high school kids to relate to Alex and the teenage problems that he's dealing with, whether it's his first crush or moving to a new town and being the new kid in school. And then there are all the sports issues that are really the focus of the book. But at the same time. I do remember uh, when I was a, a, a new father and watching things like Sesame Street and, and, and some of the Disney movies with my kids and realizing that there were certain moments where they were actually targeting the grown-ups. I still remember famously Robin McNeil interviewing Cookie Monster, uh, which was one of the great bits <laughs> I've ever seen. And, and I laughed at it more, harder than my son, who was four or five at the time, did. And then as he got older, he came to understand it better. So when I hear uh, an adult like you say, hey, I really enjoyed the mystery, I really enjoyed the story, or maybe I enjoyed the sort of lessons that I'm trying to throw in when I write these books, I'm very glad to hear it. So uh, the more the merrier, and uh, you're not the first adult to make that comment to me, and I consider it a compliment. Very good. 
Uh, so this scenario of the, the young man moving to a very strange town just as he's a freshman in high school, something which really happened to me, actually, although I was not the quarterback on the football right. team, I can tell you that. But uh, I remember how hard it was to make a move like this at this point in time. You know, even if you're a, a talented athlete, when it's a big school full of strangers, uh, even a freshman like Alex, uh, brilliantly talented though he is, can really be lost and bewildered. Tell us more about that scenario, why you thought it was uh, fertile ground for a book like this and uh, what you drew upon to, to paint this picture so realistically. Well, I think uh, a lot of kids, uh, go through the difficulties of changing schools or moving to a new city for whatever the reason might be uh, when they're teenagers. Uh, I changed schools between my freshman and sophomore years of high school. Didn't change cities, but changed schools. And I remember how difficult that was. And I was an athlete. I was a, a good swimmer. That's why I changed schools. And it was still very difficult for me because everybody kind of looked at me like I had two heads for a while. And I think that happens, particularly in the teenage years, when you're first becoming aware of, you know, of, of, in my case, girls, in Alex's case, girls, uh, and, and all that goes on with that change of life. And I think that makes it even tougher. And as you said, he's going into a big public school in Philadelphia. He's grown up in Boston. He's a Boston sports fan. Now he's in Philadelphia, and everybody's kind of looking at him like, who are you? And it is very difficult for him. One of the things that's interesting, too, is that uh, – Alex, as a brilliant young quarterback, faces this really thorny situation of having to carry himself just right, to try to be confident and yet not cocky, and sort of knowing his place in the team and yet not knowing how much he should settle for being third string when he clearly deserves through his talent to be more than that and what his attitude should be towards the other players. I mean, I, I found myself really feeling for Alex uh, in this kind of situation where on top of the challenging game of football, there is also, in a sense, sort of the politics he had to play or, right. or, or sort of make his way in, 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 in that kind of respect, which can't be easy for a, a, a young man like that. Yeah, I think you've got it exactly right. And, and what I tried to do, Greg, as you know because you've read the book, uh, is I didn't want to make it a black-and-white situation where the, he's the good guy and the first-string quarterback is the bad guy. The first-string quarterback is actually a good guy. And that makes it in some ways more difficult for Alex because he can't, he can't hate the kid. He likes the kid, and yet he still wants to play. He still wants to be the starter, and it's the father who's the coach who is the issue, not only for him but for, for, for the first-string quarterback because the coach father is putting so much pressure on his son to be a star, as we discussed earlier. So it is a thorny situation, and I, I try not to oversimplify. I think when we were kids growing up, there was a tendency to over, oversimplify kids' books. Kids today are much more sophisticated than that. You've got to give them a story that they can sit back and say, this is believable. I think this could happen. I think I've been in situations that might in some ways be similar to this. And I tried to draw that picture throughout the book. But clearly, yes, it's, it's not easy for Alex on any level. One of the things mentioned in the book is something I've never heard of and uh, I would love for you to talk about a little bit. And that is uh, some of the uh, members of this team who, who eventually come to see Alex and see what a brilliant quarterback he is and yet relegated to third string and, uh, and in 
it appears uh, in the early going, at least, that there is no way he's going to see any kind of significant playing time whatsoever. And uh, more than one of them suggests the the possibility of Alex being held back in school. So he's around yet another year, which would give him, in a sense, one more year of high school eligibility as a starter once Matt Gordon, the, uh, the incumbent, has graduated and moved on. And they talk about this as though it's relatively commonplace. In well, fact, does this happen? Yes, Greg, it does. It has become relatively commonplace. There are many parents nowadays uh, who are the, uh, have, have kids who are athletes who will hold their, their son or, or even daughter back a year. It happens a lot in football because of, of the size issue. You, you, know, you want your kid to get bigger and stronger, and you give them an extra year of high school. You have them repeat the ninth grade or, or go to a, a, a prep school at the end of 12th grade. They do it on both ends. There are a lot of prep schools now, postgraduate prep schools, where, where athletes go for a year before they enroll in college, and then sometimes they redshirt their freshman year, so they're 20 years old when, by the time they have their first year of eligibility. So, it, yes, for better or worse, it is a very common practice now. You see a lot of kids who are freshmen in college who are 19 or 20 years old who are athletes. Wow. As I read this book, a couple of things came up. One of them is that uh, there were certain points in time when we're talking about injuries that occur on the field, and and, uh, that's one of the things we hear the most about in terms of football right now is the toll that it takes, Uh, whether we're talking about uh, a, a retired NFL veteran whose body is completely broken down, uh, or, or, or facing uh, maybe early-onset dementia because of the injuries they've sustained, or if we're talking about even much younger athletes who find their playing days suddenly cut short or suffering maybe devastating injuries. I wonder if you could just say a word about how much we are thinking about this now versus when you first began writing about sports. Have we traveled any significant distance in terms of taking this seriously and doing something about it? We have traveled a significant distance, Greg, but we are still a long way from figuring it out. I saw a quote from a concussion specialist fairly recently who said we are, we're only in the infant stages of understanding what head injuries do to the brain, that the doctors are still learning as they go. And 20, 30 years from now, I would think the way head injuries are treated and the way we deal with with football and the potential for head injuries will be different now than it is, even though a lot has changed. But you're right about the way the approach to football has changed, even in the last five years, but more so in the last 20 years. I did a book 10 years ago where I spent a year with the Baltimore Ravens, an NFL team, and I I, I began the book describing a scene uh, after the Ravens' last game of the season, and they walked out of a team meeting and walked down a hallway to the locker room. And I could honestly say, looking around, remember, these were the players who had played the day before, not the ones who were on the injured list. I was the only one walking upright. I was the only one who didn't have some kind of injury at that point because I obviously hadn't played. Football is a very violent game. And if you watch from the sidelines, as I've had the opportunity to do, then you, you have an understanding of just how violent it is. You see these extraordinary collisions, whether it's NFL, college, or high school, and everybody gets up 99% of the time and trots back to the huddle, 
and you don't know how anybody got up from that collision. And that's, one of, again, one of the points I'm trying to make. One of the things Alex says uh, in, in, the, in the second book in this series, uh, Christine, who's the female lead character, says, what's your favorite sport? And he says, it's either basketball or baseball. And she says, but you're so good at football. And he says, yeah, but football's really hard to play. It hurts to play football. And I think that's accurate. Mm. One of the uh, issues facing the game right now is whether football athletes uh, at the collegiate level should be paid or compensated uh, more directly than is the case right now. Do you have a, a personal opinion about that? Yeah, I have a very strong one. I, I believe that athletes who generate millions and sometimes billions of dollars in revenue for these big-time college programs in football and men's basketball should receive some compensation. I happen to have agreed with the judge in the Ed O'Bannon case who ruled that athletes should have a trust fund set up for them and should have money put into that trust fund while they're in school. I've been advocating this for 25 years. And people at the collegiate level say, well, what about Title IX? What about non-revenue athletes? Well, you, you write the rule very simply. If your sport generates revenue for the school, net revenues, then you take part in that trust fund. I think the judge in the O'Bannon case was headed in the right direction and that there should be some compensation. I'm not saying they should be employees or they should get a check every two weeks because then all sorts of tax issues with their scholarships come into play. But there is a way to acknowledge that these young men, and they're men, with the exception of a couple of women's basketball programs at places like Connecticut and Tennessee, are bringing in millions and billions of dollars to the NCAA and to these colleges. And to, to call them amateurs is absolutely ridiculous. Hmm. A last quick question. I characterize this uh, Pennsylvania uh, high school as sort of football crazy. Uh, does it ever make you nervous when you look at a high school where football, and it's true of so many high schools across the country, where right. football is so important? If you could yeah. rave, wave a magic wand, would you somehow wish it not to be so, to be not quite such a craze for so many Americans? I, I, I would, actually, Greg. And, and as you can tell reading the book, I, I have serious reservations and doubts about the power of a football coach at the high school level and how much winning football games means to everybody associated with the high school. Because as you said, even though I've created a fictional school here, it's based on reality, not just in Pennsylvania, but across the country. Go back to Friday Night Lights years and years ago. That's been going on for many years. And I wish there was some way to communicate to people that, look, it's great to care about sports. It's great to participate. It's great to root for your kids. But again, go back to what I said earlier. Let them play the sports. That's why I wanted Alex to be a three-sport athlete, so that he and his family aren't obsessed with him working at one sport. Let kids play the games. If you win, that's fantastic. But you know what? If you lose, having tried to win is, is, should be part of sports. I know that sounds corny, but the, trying to win is, is just about as important as winning itself. The best words I've ever read about sports are, sit in the, in the lobby of the Palestra in Philadelphia, and it says, to play the game is great, to win the game is greater, but to love the game is the greatest thing of all. And I know that sounds corny, Greg, but it would be, be wonderful if we could get back to something that simple. <laughs> I love that. And the book I loved as well, The Walk-On, May the Best Quarterback Win, the first in a series of three books, The uh, Triple Threat, and all by 
best-selling author, John Feinstein. Thank you, John Feinstein, for writing yet another wonderful book, and I'm glad we got to talk about it today on The Morning Show. Greg, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it.